We're going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. Today we're going to be in chapter 3. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. guys. Welcome. Uh, this is going to be part three and we're going to be in Galatians chapter three. I hope you guys are enjoying this. I certainly enjoyed uh, putting this series together and teaching it at uh, a Calvary Chapel in Berthoud, Colorado. And so on today's podcast, uh, the recording equipment was having some technical difficulties. So probably like the first 30 seconds to a minute of the teaching got chopped off as the people in the sound booth were scrambling trying to figure out why things weren't working correctly. Uh, but whatever the case, it's not like you're missing a whole lot. Uh, the first couple minutes of today's teaching is reviewing what has happened before in the previous two chapters. And so as long as you were paying attention in the previous two uh, podcasts, you shouldn't really miss anything here. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and jump right in. To combat what's going on there at Galatia, because he doesn't want these Galatians to f- basically fall away from the faith. They're buying into another gospel. The outline, uh, gl- the book of Galatians is very easy to remember as far as an outline. It goes, there's only six chapters in the book, and it goes by two, two, and two. The first two chapters are Paul defending his apostleship because these Judaizers were attacking his apostleship. And uh, secondly, and most importantly, he was defending the divine origin of the gospel that he was presenting. Okay, Chapters 3 and 4, we're going to be jumping into chapter 3 tonight. He starts uh, getting into the theology of law versus grace. And he offers a lot of arguments showing the inferiority of the law to grace. Uh, and then chapters 5 and 6 we'll be getting into pretty soon. Uh, he gets into the moral and ethical considerations resulting from the fact that we are now under grace. You know, since we're under grace, should we, should we go ahead and sin? God forbid. Those, that's the outline. Now, the last time we met, we were talking about, uh, chapter 2. And um, in that chapter, like I said, Paul was defending his apostleship and he was also defending the divine origin of the gospel that he was presenting. It was from God. One of the things that we took a rabbit trail on that was really important, we, we looked at uh, uh, Acts chapter 15. Paul went up there with Titus to Jerusalem and there was uh, a group of Judaizers there that, that's basically their home base, is Jerusalem. And he went up there, and they started saying the same things. You need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to fulfill all the law of Moses in order to be saved. This created a huge stir. The, the big boys, the apostles, got together and had this big council. And we saw that um, Peter weighs in, Paul and Bartimus weigh in on this council, and also James. 
And they come out the other side with a conclusion. The Holy Spirit also weighed in on this one. And the conclusion was, should, okay, should the Gentiles keep all the law of Moses? James concludes and says, keep them from pollutions of idols, keep them from fornication, things strangled, and from blood. Nothing about circumcision, nothing about keeping all the law of Moses. And also, one of the beautiful things is, Paul, he shows up with Titus. Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile. I mean, if you can imagine how intense this must have been for Titus. And he left still uncircumcised, which is, it is, it is, uh, the apostle's stamp of approval on the fact that it is not the law that saves us. We cannot be justified by the law, nor can we be in some way, uh, um, given some kind of divine favor through the law. Okay? And so, with that, we come upon chapter three, verse one. Paul jumps in. I mean, it is like Paul is Hulk Hogan off the top ropes with an elbow drop because he comes in and he is, he's excited and he starts hitting with all these really hard hitting questions. Uh, I think there's six of them, but whatever the case, who's counting? He comes in with all these tough questions and questions are really important. Jesus used questions to shatter the worldview of, of various people who were, who had false beliefs. He would use hard hitting questions to really shake them up and make them stop and think. Why is that? Well, because when you ask a question, you're, you're not coming in and putting your finger in someone's face and giving them assertions. You're asking them a question and, and hoping that they will logically follow the trail of thought to the conclusion that you've already reached. And when somebody reaches that conclusion in their own mind, now they've taken ownership of the answer. And that's how you convince people. Well, Paul takes after Jesus here, and he comes in with a bunch of questions. He starts off in verse 1, and I'm reading from the King James Version, so it's a little bit different from the New King James. That's right. <laughs> and he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. So he starts right off, and this false gospel, this other gospel that the Judaizers, it's so hard for me to say that, the Judaizers were bringing to the Galatians, um, he compares it to being bewitched, like under a spell, which is kind of interesting because, you know, if you ever try to talk to people who are, are sucked into various worldviews, whether they're atheists or Mormons or whatever, it is so hard. It feels like they're actually bewitched, like they're, they're possessed with this worldview. It's really hard to shake them of it. I mean, you can show them all kinds of facts, and they just don't want to hear it. But he compares it to being bewitched. And then he goes on in verse 2. He says, This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Boom. So <laughs> right away, he hits him with this tough question. You know, I, I showed up. I preached the gospel to you guys. You got saved. Was it by the, the works of the law or by the Spirit? When you, or when you received the Holy Spirit, was it by faith or was it through working out the works of the law? That's a tough question. That probably made them stand back and go, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. 
But he doesn't, he doesn't hold off. He hits him with more questions. But, uh, really quick on the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is, it's a seal. It's a sign that Christ has justified us, that he has saved us. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 and 14. I got a ton of scriptures today. Sorry. Bear with me. I, I really hit it hard. Um, but in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're going to be talking a lot about the promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So yeah, the Holy Spirit is, it's a sign of that interchange, that salvation. And it is that seal. And so verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And so here he's asking him, guys, you know, Christ just pulled you out of the gutter. He saved you. He gave you the Holy Spirit. You know that's a sign of the salvation. You have been justified. Do you somehow think that you're going to make yourself more perfect by keeping the law of Moses and by trusting in, in it, the law, over what Christ just did on the cross, that perfect sacrifice that he did on the cross? Again, making him think, but then he doesn't hold back. He continues on. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? Now, these Galatians... Um, like just about everybody during that time, shortly after the time of Christ, uh, after being converted, after trusting in Christ, man, stuff happened. They started suffering. Some of them were disfellowshipped from their family, basically. Some of them lost their livelihood, their jobs. Uh, persecution happened. Some of them were beaten. Some of them were put to death. You know, some people gave their lives for this. Have you suffered in vain? But then he ends it with, if it yet be in vain. In fact, Paul is holding out hope that uh, this false gospel hasn't fully taken root and that he can hopefully root it out with this epistle. And I think he does an excellent job as he goes on. Uh, verse 5, He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, right here, kind of Jim's humorous illustration of holding out the microphone and dropping it and walking off. That could have been Paul's moment right there. Boom! And walking off. Because, you know, think about it. It's almost like a one-two punch. Paul's like, look, I showed up in Miracle Signs and Wonders. I produce, I, you saw me perform miracles in your presence. Did I do it by following the law? Or did I do it by faith? That I did do it through the Spirit. And I think the, the implicit, the, the implied question in there also is, what about the Judaizers? Did they show up with miracle signs and wonders? Were they healing people? No, of course not. And so that, yeah, boom. And he walked away. <laughs> and so, uh, verse six, I'm going to try and get through the whole chapter tonight. So I am kind of going a little fast, but verse six, we change topics a little bit. Paul's done with his questions. Now that he's got them dazed and looking around in circles with little birdies flying around their head and they're not sure what just happened, 
he jumps into a little theology and brings them back to the Old Testament because here they are so concerned about the law. They're so concerned about uh, the Torah. And so he's like, okay, let's, let's go back and have a Torah lesson. And so in verse 6, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, who are the heathen? That's you guys. We already determined that. You're a bunch of heathen. <clears throat> Through faith, preached before the gospel. The, wait, what? Preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. I'm going to stop right there really quick. Uh, the gospel, you know, gospel means good news. And there was a seed of the gospel that was even given to Abraham. No pun intended, actually. Sorry about that. Yes, there was a seed, and he was talking about Abraham's seed, the promised one, the Messiah that was going to come. And so in verse 9, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So Abraham, pagan, worshiping idols, God calls him out of his tent and says, Look up in the stars, you know, look up in the sky. Can you count the stars? No. Well, so shall your descendants be. So shall your seed be. Um, Sarah and Abraham were really old. Sarah was, I think, 99. Abraham, I think, was a little bit above 100. Okay? Pretty ancient for having children. So I could see why there would be a little bit of doubt there. Uh, but through this seed as we're going to see as we progress here, the nations would be blessed. And so that seed of the gospel was already being planted in Abraham. And um, so Romans chapter 4, verse 20 through 25 says it this way. Romans kind of, we keep going back to Romans during this study today because there's so much about justification and and uh, versus the law, Okay trying to achieve justification through keeping of the law. Uh, it says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, that's Abraham, that's the he, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him, imputed, big theological term, it just means credited, okay? It is credited. It was credited to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So if, if God can justify an uncircumcised pagan guy, keep in mind, too, Abraham was long before the law, 430 years to be exact, long before the giving of the law. If God can justify pagan a pagan like that, he can certainly justify any of us heathen Gentiles, right? And so moving on to verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Curse. What is this Curse. What's being said here? Why would Paul refer to um, trying to be under the law as a curse? I mean, 
for for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, the, the world was basically in darkness. And then Moses comes along. God gives the law to Moses. And what what could possibly be wrong with thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not kill or any of the things that are in the law? It's actually a wonderful thing. Why would it be referred to as a curse? Uh, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. That's why. That's why. Because if you're, if you're going to try and keep the, the law, you need to keep it 100%. I mean, let's go back to when you're a baby from day one, and you better get it right, 100%. You know what? No one's ever done that except Jesus. You can't do it. It's impossible. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. What then? Are we better than they? No. In no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that all are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, except for Jim. Just kidding. <laughs> so we're, we're all sinners. There's nothing. I mean, there's no possible way for any of us to earn our salvation. It's just, it's not going to happen. And so Paul goes on in verse 11. He says, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now, that one little phrase, it shows up multiple times in the Bible. Um, it shows up first in Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Didn't Russ teach Habakkuk? No. Yes? Yes. The just shall live by faith. In fact, Habakkuk 2, 4, it says it this way. Uh, it says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. It also shows up in Romans, and it shows up in Galatians, as we've seen, and then lastly, it shows up in the book of Hebrews. Um, this particular phrase stumped a particular German monk in the 1500s. He hated God. His name was Martin Luther. That's by his own admission. He hated God at that time. He was stumped. What? Here he is. He's a monk. Okay, so he's he's serving in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church really blurs the lines between justification and sanctification. And if you don't know what those words mean, that's okay. We're going to get to it. We're going to really look at it here in a few minutes. But those lines were really blurred. And he was like, we're supposed to follow all these sacraments. We're supposed to do all these works. Our efforts are what save us. It is our affiliation with the Roman Catholic Church that saves us. But the just shall live by faith. And so he didn't know what to do with that. And that actually was the beginning of his loss of that faith and the Protestant Reformation, which we are very thankful for now. So justification. What is that? Big word. And I know I talked a little bit about this the last time we met, which was weeks back, so we've all forgot anyway. Justification. And this is really important to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. And I'll explain why also. Justification happens at the moment you trust in Christ. 
When you trust in him for your salvation, you have been justified. It's as if you had never sinned before. You were made positionally, you were made righteous before God. If you drop dead one second later, you will be, you'll be saved. You're saved. It's just like the, the thief that's on the cross next to Jesus, and he says, will you, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He's basically trusting in Christ, and Jesus looks over at him. I love this. And he says, truly, truly, I tell you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. This is like, this is a bad man. He's being crucified for his own uh, uh, crimes, and he's going to be allowed to be in paradise with Jesus? He doesn't get a chance to change his behavior. It's not like he could get down from the cross and say, okay, from this day forward, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to follow all the, mo- the mosaic law. I'm going to do it all, okay? And then Jesus is like, yep, someday you will be with me in paradise. Just keep that law. You know, no. It, and so justification, it, it positionally makes you righteous before God. It doesn't change your behavior. I think a good analogy would be uh, marriage, okay? Uh, when my wife and I got married, you know, the, the pastor, he declares us man and wife, and when he does that, that changes our position or our standing before the government, before God. I should have said God first, right? Before God and then before the government, before family and friends, we've changed our status, okay, before each other. Our status has changed, but it doesn't change your behavior. It doesn't make you a different person as far as your behavior goes. Um, if you look at marriage in the long run, over time, as you love your spouse and you want to please your spouse and you start learning about those things that your spouse doesn't like and you start changing, you know, you're set, shutting the toilet seat and you're squeezing from the end of the toothpaste tube instead of the middle and stuff like that, okay? Uh, whatever it might be, I know those are the cheesy ones, whatever it might be, um, that would be a better illustration of sanctification because we love God, we love Jesus so much, we want to know more about him. We want to know what God wants from us and the Holy Spirit starts putting his finger on various problems in our life, sins. You've got to change this. This has got to stop. This is not of me. You're not being a good ambassador for my kingdom. This is not what I want from you. And then you change and uh, then Holy Spirit puts his finger on another thing. This this has got to go. This is not good. I don't like it. You know, that would be the difference between the two. So um, we already quoted the scripture, but I'll look at, I want to look at it one more time. Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 25. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written at, for his sake alone. This is Abraham we're speaking of that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And so Christ's infinite merit is is the ground in which believers stand on before God, Okay? It is his righteousness that we get to take for our account, if you will. That's kind of a crude analogy, but 
It's kind of like we have this bankrupt zero account, whatever, and we're trying to buy our way into heaven. I know it's a very crude analogy, but Christ's merit is imputed. It's credited to us that we have that righteousness uh, before God. It's, it's truly amazing. But even still, we're, we're sinners. We're justified, but we're still sinners. Okay? First uh, John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Eh. <laughs> if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess, oh, I love this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, yeah, the scriptures agree. I mean, this, this was John writing this. John was justified. He was saved, in other words. John, if he could have died halfway through writing those words, he would have gone to heaven. You know what I mean? But we're all sinners. He was still walking and living in sin. Okay? So sanctification is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process where God starts changing us and molding us into who he wants us to be. You don't just get saved and immediately you're just like, ching, and you're like super Christian, you got it going on, and there's no issues in your life. Okay? You know, what God started, he will also finish. Another scripture that you guys will not see, but you have read before. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, verses 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Praise God. That is good news. Because you guys are wreck. Seriously. Just kidding. But <laughs> I'll just speak for myself, okay? I, I need a little bit of work. I'm almost perfect. My wife will tell you. But a little, little bit of work. So justification, it's distinct from sanctification. Uh, justification does not make a sinner uh, stop sinning, okay? It just saves you. It, it Well, not just. It makes you righteous before God. It saves you. Sanctification just cleanses you. It changes your behavior. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. I'm just burning through the scriptures and the screens are black. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So, why is this so important? This is, this is going to be a big issue in the, in the years to come. Um, as we speak, and for the last like probably 20 years or so, uh, evangelicals have been linking arms with Roman Catholics for various social and political causes. And, you know, on the surface, it looks really good. You know, we're uh, linking arms with them, and we're trying to stop this country from killing babies, from abortion. We're linking arms with them to try and end world hunger, stuff like that, okay? It all sounds really good, but what ends up happening is a lot of the traditions that they believe that are not scriptural start bleeding into and merging into our faith. That's where we start having problems. Now, um, kind of the majority opinion, 
of eschatology, of end times, is that the, the one world religion will most likely be based out of Rome. If that's the case, if that's the case, there's some arguments that say otherwise, but if that's the case, and it kind of looks like it is, um, this issue right here, justification and sanctification, is going to be huge. Because the Roman Catholic Church, they blend justification and sanctification into basically one and the same. They say that at the moment you're justified, when you when you uh, trust in Christ and the Holy Roman Church, um, you will be infused with grace. And this grace will allow you, will give you the power, will empower you to uh, work out through your own efforts, through sacraments and whatever, work out your own salvation. You earn your own salvation. That is what they teach. In fact, uh, during the Council of Trent, um, which was a response to the Protestant Reformation, they said that anyone who believes that you are justified by grace through faith alone, anyone that believes that or teaches that is anathema, is accursed. They still hold to that today. They haven't redacted, they haven't recanted, or however you want to say it. They haven't pulled that teaching back. It's still there. So, uh, will that be a problem in the coming days? Well, if, if the one world faith is coming from Rome, then yes. And so it is so critical that you guys understand the distinction between justification and sanctification, because that will be a battleground for tomorrow. Uh, a lot of cult movements also get those blurred together. So it's just good to understand that. Uh, for really just complete, thorough, theological presentation of the difference between the two, just read the book. Read the book of Romans. That one presents it perfectly. It's awesome. So going all the way back, um, you know what? I want to mention a couple more things. If justification and sanctification are merged, then justification becomes a process. It's not something that is attained immediately. It's progressive. It's not complete. In other words, you don't know if you're saved or not. You don't know if you're actually going to heaven. You can attain justification or salvation only to lose it later, according to that theology. Okay, so anyway... Going back, I want to just run back to verse 10 of Galatians just so we can pull the context back together now that I've taken that huge rabbit trail, which I'm so good at. Uh, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not faith, is not of faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. The law is not of faith. Okay? If you're, if you're living after the law, if you're trusting in the law for your salvation, that is not faith. And so verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so Christ, fully God, but yet fully man, wrap your brain around that one, is born on this planet. He fulfills the law to the letter. He doesn't miss a jot or a tittle. He gets it all. Okay, lives a perfect life. And then... Uh, he gives himself 
a ransom, a sacrifice to cover for the punishment that we deserve. He makes himself or places himself under the curse on our behalf. That just blows me away. That gives me goosebumps. And verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ. Let me, let me read the end of, uh, let me just read verse 13 again just to get that in context. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Us heathen can be saved. <laughs> Going on, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or added or can add thereto. I know. What what just happened there? I, I Everything was cool, and then we hit that sentence, and I just lost it. Train wrecked, crashing, burning, flames, and smoke. What he's saying there is uh, God made this covenant with Abraham. And because God made this, no man can add to the covenant. covenant. No man can take away from the covenant. And no man can cancel out or disannul this covenant. And so in verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, This is a very confusing line. He saith not, and to the seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Did you guys catch that? So, he wasn't saying to Abraham, your seeds, plural, but your seed, singular, and that seed was Christ. That little seed of the gospel being planted there. Verse 17, and this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years, you guys thought I was smart, but I actually pulled it out of the scripture, 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. So God makes this covenant, this promise with Abraham, and Abraham believes it and is justified. 430 years later, the law comes. Moses gets the law from God and uh, ends up writing the first five books of the Bible. And um, does the law uh, uh, disannul, can it disannul, this promise that was made to Abraham? Absolutely not. No, it can't. And we'll, we'll look into that a little bit further. So verse 18, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So most of you guys know I'm an employer. Okay, I got employees under me. Imagine one Friday, I have all my guys at the shop, and I say, hey, I got a gift for you guys. You've been doing really good, and I just want to give you a gift. And I hand them all an envelope, and they crack it open, they're all excited, and inside is their paycheck. You know, and they're looking at it like, dude, you know. One of them might even say, hey, this is my check. This is not a gift. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I got my check. Don't get me wrong, but this is not a gift. 
I earned it. I worked 40 hours. We agreed on a wage. This is my check. It's not a gift. And they'd be really annoyed with me. Well, the same thing here. If we think that we can work the works of the law and, and attain salvation, you know, if salvation is by the law, then it's no more a gift, like God's word says. It's actually owed to us. It's like a paycheck. We earned it. God, you owe this to me. Don't tell me it's a gift. See what I'm saying? See what Paul is saying here? And so he's, he basically says that. Verse 18, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Verse 19, actually no, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. We have scriptures. <laughs> what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereto to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt? Right? So if we work the works of the law and uh, uh, are, are saved by it, then that's just something that God owes us. That's not a free gift. As, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know? Verse 19 Wherefore then serveth the law? I love the King James. In other words, what's the point of the law? Okay? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Kind of cryptic. What does that mean? Well, usually in some kind of a deal, a covenant, there's two parties involved. But in this particular covenant that God made with Abraham, Abraham had nothing to do with it. He was just blessed. He was just given a gift, basically. This covenant was of one mediator, God alone. And so, moving on, where in the world am I? There it is. Uh, <laughs> Verse 22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. We're all under sin. And, you know, and I've already shared some scriptures that basically say that. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, just a quick little scripture. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Something we've all heard. Now, and so verse 23 in Galatians, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. And so, it's, it's, I mean, it's almost like you're imprisoned by the law. You're kept under the law. You're shut in until Christ, you know, comes and this faith is revealed to us. Verse 24 and here is where we get into the real purpose of the law. What's the law for then? If we can't work our way to heaven, why did why is it even in there? And so he goes into verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster 
to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, generally, when you think of schoolmaster, you're thinking like a, a teacher, right? Some kind of teacher. And I think that image works because the law shows us our utter sinfulness. We just can't do it. I mean, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't do it. But there's actually a little bit more to it than even that. Uh, and when you look at that Greek word used there for schoolmaster, it was the same Greek word that was used for um, a particular type of slave that a master would have. This slave was kind of like a child leader, a child director. Okay, And this guy would uh, help lead and develop the moral character of the child, of the master's son, if you will. Okay, He would also uh, police who they were hanging out with. He would want to make sure they had good influences in their life. So he would really check out who they're fellowshipping with. And then lastly, uh, he was in charge of making sure they made it to school and back home safely. And so, you know, it's kind of like the law in, in a sense because the law is our schoolmaster, our, our, our child leader. It takes us by the hand. It helps develop us morally, ethically. We understand that it is wrong to steal. It's wrong to kill. And there's so many amazing lessons in, in the Torah. I mean, the Torah is packed full with amazing truths, types and shadows, showing us uh, uh, parts of Christ's character, but also showing us um, about our utter need. I mean, just utter sinfulness and our need for someone to save us, a, a big sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice that will cover our sins. And so the law then takes us by the hand and takes us to school and shows us how much we need the Savior. Pretty cool. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are guilty before God. I'm sorry. Saith to them who are under the law, I skipped a line, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Um, on that same note, Romans 7, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, says it a little differently. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. I can't think of a better way to illustrate this than when a dumb American goes to China and has no idea about the laws, okay? You know, being on the subway in Hong Kong, and we're just packed in like sardines, and I got my arm up like this, and there's people just everywhere, claustrophobic person's worst nightmare, okay? And you're all packed in, my arm's up, I'm having one of those sure, unsure moments, only I'm kind of unsure, and I've got... A Chinese person's face just about tucked in my armpit. And it's eerily quiet on the, on the subway. I, I mean, except for, of course, the, the, the racket of the thing driving, but it's really quiet. And this dumb American thinks it's funny and makes a comment and says something to the effect of, wow, I guess I picked the wrong month not to take a shower. Okay, some people laughed. Some people stood at, I mean, kind of looked at me in shocked horror. 
And then Harley looks over at me and says, Mike. And he points at a sign. It was the quiet car. There was a fine for staying, t- for speaking in this car. And here I'm cracking jokes and I yelled this out. I mean, I yelled it out. And I mean, there's people with babies and they're giving me this crusty. I would not have known that I was sinning had it not been for the law that Harley had pointed at. Oh, man. Just one of those wonderful moments when, uh, boy, if my wife was there, she would have gave me laser beam eyes. You know? <laughs> so, anyway, uh, uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Praise God. Should we sin that grace abound? God forbid. Verse 25, But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all children of God by faith, and Jesus Christ, so we're no longer being led around by the hand of this schoolmaster telling us who we can and can't hang out with, if you will, you know, or or telling us we have to do all of these things, okay? And so verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Praise God. That is so cool. You know, that, that verse right there, um, that verse has changed hearts and minds the world over. Slave owners looking at that verse and realizing we're all one in Christ. And, you know, the Bible has a very subtle way of refuting slavery. It just kind of works in. You start realizing the heart of God. And pretty soon it just doesn't feel right anymore. Uh, by the way, if any of you are bugged by slavery in the Bible, especially slavery in the Old Testament, I have a series on that. Not to have a shameless plug, but I do. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in the Old Testament that really freak people out. You're like, oh my gosh, do they really do that? Well, yeah, but it's not as bad as you think. Check out that series if it bugs you, because we get down and dirty. It turns out that it's more of indentured servitude. Um, somebody has a debt they can't pay. Well, here we declare bankruptcy, and then we all get to pay it, right, with our taxes. Well, back then, you sold yourself to somebody. You owe somebody a debt. You can't pay it. You sell yourself to them. You become their slave. Uh, were they to mistreat you? No, they were supposed to love you. They were supposed to uh, treat you like family. They were supposed to feed you like the rest of the family. They were supposed to let you participate in the feasts with the rest of the family. Uh, they were not to steal people. Men stealers, the penalty for men stealing was death. So this wasn't slavery where you go out and kidnap somebody and put them on a boat and then take them home and make them a slave. And when these slaves were set free, and eventually they were, when their debt was paid or when the year of Jubilee came around, um, they would be set free and they would be set free with a care package. They'd be set free with like almost like a little business starter. They would have a small flock. They'd have a bunch of seed. They would have some wine. They would have some, some uh, uh, funds to get started. So they basically, they were, it wasn't just like, you know, you're free, 
go hit the streets, it was actually a really good thing. It was a big celebration. Or if the slave decided they loved their master so much, they could be uh, marked and become theirs forever, which is kind of cool anyway. But big rabbit trail, big rabbit trail, sorry. This verse has been pivotal in changing hearts and minds. It also speaks to racism. There's neither Jew nor Greek, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that's great too. We're all one blood, you know. I think there's only one race. There's just variation within our kind, humankind. So, anyway, thank you for that rabbit trail. Last verse of the chapter, and if you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Praise God. I, I'm looking around the room. There's Everybody's believers here. Somebody might be listening online. I don't know. Uh, but if, if a person wants to be an heir according to this promise, if they want to be justified as if they'd never sinned before, it's really simple. It's very simple. But you can't rely on your works. Even if you think, oh, my, my good works outweigh my bad works. I'm, you know, my scales are real heavy. Muslims really believe this. They're really into that. If you do more good works than bad works and your good works weigh so much more, then you're probably going to be okay. That's not how it works. I mean, if you can imagine going before a judge and saying, yes, I, I know I'm guilty of murder. Okay. But you got to understand, I, like 99% of the time, I'm a really good guy. I do good things. I've got really good works behind me. And he's going to say, you know what? You're not here for the good things you do. You're here for this one bad thing you did. And you're guilty. And so likewise, with us, we can't, our good works will never outweigh our bad works. And even if we only have one bad work, it doesn't matter. For the wages of sin, singular, is death. So... The only, the, the only solution here is to trust in Christ alone. He paid it all on the cross for us. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for teaching us out of your word tonight. We pray, Father, that all that was of you, that you would seal it to our hearts, that we would be able to call it to our remembrance in those times when we need it. We love your word. We thank you so much for your word. It's so precious to us. Keep sanctifying us, Lord. Thank you for justifying us, but now sanctify us. Make us more like you. Make us more uh, um, better ambassadors for you, Father. We praise you. We love you. And thank you in Jesus' name. Sing it out loud. Declaration.